1: Hello, I'm Ian Leslie, and this is The New Statesman Deep Dive, a politics podcast that explores the ideas behind the news. In each show, we'll take a different political concept or buzzword and interrogate it until it screams for mercy. We'll be doing that with the help of an expert from the relevant field. Yes, we still believe in experts here on The Deep Dive. In today's show, we're going to discuss media bias, a phrase that is thrown around a lot but seems to mean different things to different people. We'll be getting stuck into this with our guest, but before we do that, I need to introduce my co-host on The Deep Dive, Stuart Wood, a.k.a. Lord Wood of Anfield. Hello, Stuart. Halloween. Good to be Ernie Wise to your Eric Morecambe. (laughs) What a compliment. Stuart is a professor of politics and a practitioner. He's been an advisor to two Labour leaders, Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband. He's worked at the Treasury and Number 10, and he now sits in the House of Lords. So he knows his way around the alleys and byways of Westminster and public policy in a way that, frankly, I do not. I'm here to ask the stupid questions. So I think it's worth Stuart and I just spending five minutes unloading our thoughts on the topic of today's deep dive before we invite our special guest to join in and essentially take over. So as they say on Dragon's Den, let me tell you where I am. When people talk about media bias, they can mean several different things, it seems to me, some of which are more useful than others. One of the less useful ways people use it is to call out political commentators who are offering an opinion If a pundit or a newspaper puts forward a point of view or is explicitly aligned with a particular party or cause, then it seems silly to shout bias at them. A bias is only a bias if it's hidden. Another way people use it is to talk about the structural bias of the news media, to point out that most of our newspapers back the Tories, for instance. Now this seems like a reasonable thing to remark on and to bear in mind, although I do think that people on the left rarely develop it much further than that. I mean, if it's true that much or most of the media has a bias against the left, the next question is... What are you going to do about it? How should you respond? Can you change it? Probably not. So what's your strategy? Blair and Brown had one answer to that. Jeremy Corbyn may have another. Either way, you need to go further than just using it as something to blame everything on. A third way in which the concept of media bias is used, and the one that to me is the most interesting and important, is to talk about the unconscious biases of journalists. Now, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and tell you that I think most journalists are honest but they are subject to biases that they're not always aware of in the moment, like the herd effect, the instinct to coalesce around a point of view that isn't necessarily right, but is safe, because everyone else in the media is saying it. And the great thing is that you can now see this happening in real time on Twitter. So I think journalists are actually much less biased ideologically than their critics understand, but they're biased in other ways. They're biased towards drama, towards immediacy and currency, often at the expense of depth of analysis. And that can lead them to get things out of proportion. Good example from the US election. If journalists had an ideological bias towards either candidate, it was Hillary Clinton. But the moment the Comey FBI story broke, they made a huge deal out of it, even though it wasn't that substantive uh, or important relative to all the scandals surrounding Trump. And it may have cost Clinton the election. So those are my thoughts going into this. Stuart, you've seen the way that the press operates at Westminster at close quarters. What are your impressions? Well, firstly, I think there is a problem of media bias. If you look at
2: polling, people in Britain are much more likely to think there's a media bias problem. In Britain, the left feel much stronger about media bias than the right. I think this goes back 30, 40 years to a sense in particular that the printed press was run by wealthy proprietors who had an interest in low tax, low regulation, non-unionised workforce, seminal moments like the whopping strikes, like the 1992 election. And recently you've had the emergence of resentment about media bias on the right, particularly against the BBC, but on the whole it's a left-wing phenomenon in this country. It does exist, though, the way stories are framed, the way headlines are written, the choice of subject, the words are used. I don't think it's conspiracy behind it, like you, Ian, I think it's more subtle than that, but I think it is conscious. I think people respond to the institutions they're in. Uh, There are legendary stories about people like Lord Dacre, probably apocryphal stories, I should say. Intervening in editorial writing about 6pm to rewrite the editorial. Most of media bias in the printed press is much more subtle than that. You respond to the agendas you perceive of the proprietors, of the editors, of the readership. I think that's the source of a lot of media bias. I think the blurring of the line between news and comment, which has been a long-standing issue, has become a much bigger issue in the advent of social media and 24-hour-a-day coverage. It's unclear what counts as a news story, and as a comment story, when, when you're just bombarded by different forms of news, and I think that has particularly put the backs up of a lot of politicians. I think politicians also don't understand journalists, and this compounds the problem. Politicians think journalists are politically motivated. I mean, political journalists, that is. They think they get up in the morning and want to screw the Labour Party or screw the Conservative Party. Actually, they're in the story business. Politicians don't understand that journalists like stories. And they know what back home in the proprietor and the editorial office, they know what kind of stories resonate most. So in that sense, there is a bias. But on the whole, they chase stories and politicians don't understand that. And lastly, I I think there is this issue around the lobby system. The lobby system is a kind of institutionalised gossip system inside Westminster, uh, a world in which rumour, gossip, stories all sort of fly around. But one of the interesting things is the way the lobby emerge with an orthodoxy very, very quickly. A good example of this is Prime Minister's Questions. When I first started working in politics in 2001, it would take hours and hours, really, for there to be a consensus in the lobby about Prime Minister's Questions. You now get the consensus around 10, 12 minutes past 12 on a Wednesday afternoon because Twitter enables this convergence to happen. And one of the fascinating things about political journalists in the lobby particularly in the printed press, is they don't like to depart from the central view about something. They don't want to be in the business of getting it wrong. And social media enables that convergence to happen. The combination of all this, I think, means that politicians are now massively On their guard against the political press in a way that wasn't true 10, 15 years ago. You look at Theresa May's team, Ed Miliband's team, who I worked for, Gordon Brown before him, Jeremy Corbyn now, they're all incredibly defensive and are thinking about ways of bypassing or ignoring them altogether. And I think that is a not welcome development.
1: Okay, let's introduce our guest expert. Laura Koonsberg is the BBC's political editor. She is highly respected by her fellow journalists, and like anyone in the kind of position she's in, she's no stranger to accusations of bias from various quarters. We are delighted that she has taken the time to be with us today. Laura, before we get on to the question of bias itself, Stuart mentioned the lobby
3: system. Can you just
1: explain how the lobby system works?
3: That's a very good question and it's not that straightforward, but there's there's one central idea behind how the lobby system works and it's not perfect, but I would say, and I suppose some people listening might think, oh, she would say this, wouldn't I? But I would say, and I do believe this very strongly, that the point of the lobby system, which broadly works, is that we're able to find things out on behalf of our audience, readers, TV, radio, whatever, that you otherwise would not be able to find out. And that really is the primary purpose of of, of journalism, is finding out information, normally finding out information that politicians in particular don't necessarily want you to know. So the way the lobby system works is this. There's a group of journalists who work in Westminster who have the golden ticket, a lobby pass, to give them access to Parliament, its warrens, its corridors, to go into the public gallery, into the press gallery rather, and watch. But crucially... We have the the right to stop any politician who might be passing you in the corridor and ask them what they think about any story at all. The most junior baby reporter can march up to a cabinet minister and try their luck with a question. And they
1: have to answer. It's like hailing a black cab.
3: They don't. They, they <laughs> don't well, <laughs> I think actually not all cabbies will take you You know, south of the river at this time <laughs> of night. But I think that is the, the principle. It's about access. Now, no other political system in the world that I've covered, particularly in the US, do you have that kind of access. If you try to see a senator, you have to go through like 10 people. Even if you want to see somebody in Congress, you have to try to get it booked in, you know, a fortnight ahead. And what that means is that there are hundreds and hundreds of conversations every day taking place between politicians and the journalists who are lucky enough to work in parliament, which creates this sort of broad information stream. And we can talk about sort of pack mentality later on, But for my money, that means that for all the drama around it, for all the sort of conspiracy theories around the lobby, it does mean, in my view, that British punters are getting more access to information about the political system they live in than pretty much anywhere else in the world. Now, the other side of the deal, which some people have a problem with, is that what you don't do is name the people that you talk to unless they say that you can so, those briefings, those conversations where you can go up and grab a politician, a minister, or whoever else. If you're basically the understanding is that you're talking off the record. And then you might have an agreement about how you would use that information. Like, if you could, if you would say, Oh, well, can I say a minister, or can I say a government source, or can I say an opposition source, or can I say a Labour MP, or whatever. But the point is about getting information that otherwise. We wouldn't be able to have, and therefore, by extension, our readers, listeners, viewers wouldn't be able to get at. It's not perfect, but I think it works.
2: I mean, devil's advocate question. Do you think it reduces the currency of the information, though, because a casual aside, a bit of gossip can... Form a story as much as a deliberate briefing or an important fact. What? I mean, a classic, when I worked for Ed Miliband, I remember someone saying something about something that happened in our office and it said a portcullis house source. Now, that could be the, you know, the bloke who makes the coffee. I've never
3: heard a portcullis house <laughs> source before. <laughs> but, just but, people listen, that's basically where MPs have their that's, offices that's and their, hang out. Exactly. That's quite it's
2: the, sort of, it's <laughs> that's the, what... the cafe and the office centre. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, are you aware of the different levels of story there could be? Oh, sure. And I... how does the reader or viewer know the difference?
3: Well, I think, as ever in any kind of journalism, part of our job is to weigh up the quality of the information you're getting. So, you know, if a backbencher who really doesn't like David Davis says something rude to you about David Davis in the TQ, that doesn't make a story. It might be a casual aside, it might be a this or a that, but I think as ever, the onus is on journalists to weigh up the quality of the information that they're getting in exactly the same way that it's a journalist's job if they turned up at some I, I don't know if you were in a, covering a court case or you were covering a there'd been some terrible road accident. The person who's there, who's witnessed the accident, who you can see has been involved, who's giving you the information is going to give you better information than the person who happens to be walking alongside and you say, oh, did you see anything? And they say, "Oh, I didn't, uh, oh no, I didn't see anything, but it looks pretty bad, doesn't it? Those are Fundamentally, those are two different qualities of information. So the grumpy MP and the TQ telling you something versus a proper 10-minute off-the-record conversation with a cabinet minister, of course, those are two different levels of information. Now, sometimes, do people always use the information they get in in exactly the right way? Probably not. But I would really disagree with the idea that somehow everything is treated the same. And people use a kind of a side or a little tip in the same way that with something that's... Okay,
1: so that's part of, part of your job yeah. is to exercise discretion Absent. about what, what what's significant and what's not. Sure. Um, okay, so let's get back to, to bias itself because I'm interested in whether or, or if that system does in a systematic way bias your thinking or whether there's a pressure to think in a certain way because you are associating with quite a small group. So one of the criticisms frequently, you know, leveled at uh, you and journalists in general is this Westminster village idea that you're all kind of, thinking and saying the same stuff because you're all together all the time. Do you think that's a factor? And if so, are you aware of it and how do you escape it?
3: I think there's a few things to say on this. One, I think if you think of a press as diverse as the British press, then that belies that notion that everybody thinks the same. Now, yes, it's true that right now in the era that we're in at the moment, most of the papers tend to be on the right. But then you also have the guardian, you've also got the mirror. It's not the case. And I think it's important to make this point that everybody thinks the same. That's just not that's just not the case. And I think in Britain we have a sort of a kind of feast, actually, if you like, of stuff that's available. And let's not forget also what's really important is punters are making the decisions here. They're deciding what they're going to buy and what they're, what they're going to read or what they're going to watch, whether they're going to watch me or whether they're going to watch ITV or whatever. And I think you can all too quickly get to a place where somehow it's the media making all of these decisions about who reads what and who consumes what. It's that people are deciding. If they don't like a particular point of view or a particular paper, it goes out of business. If they don't watch a particular program at all, probably it's not going to get permissioned again. So, so I think that's a really important point to make. It's not the case that there's only one viewpoint. It's also not the case that there's only one type of thing on offer. So, for example, you know, me the BBC, we'd have a fantastic news service on Newsbeat, which is presented a certain way for younger audiences. Or you've got, you know, the FT, which presents stuff in a certain way because they've got a particular audience, and then the mail over in one corner and the garden in another. So I think that's an, an important thing to, to say. It's actually really diverse. There are broad, of course, yeah. you know, broad, broadly, you can say most of the press right now is on is on the right. One of the interesting things about the era that we're in at the moment is that for, for Theresa May, basically the only political pressure, more or less, not, not 100%, but broadly, the political pressure on her is all coming from the right. And of course, that has a bearing on, you know, who's reporting what, because most of the pressure on her is from the right broadly and also inside her own party. But does that follow then that there's bias? I don't accept the two things are intrinsically linked like that. Mm -hmm. See what I mean? I don't think that the one the kind of structure of the media does not mean that it doesn't follow therefore to me that journalists are somehow biased.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a difference between that structural bias and sure. the kind of individual, you know, predispositions yeah. of, a, of a journalist. But do you think that, that you know, working for the BBC, that's a very yeah. particular kind of Absolutely. role, and mm-hmm. and within that environment that you've just yep. described, how do you see the role of the BBC? Is it is it to act as a counterweight to that kind of structural bias, or is
3: it? Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, and broadly we're talking about the whole thing, but then to talk about the BBC, I mean, I think for me, one of the most important things about the British press that we have a jewel in that we have got something, an organization that by law is required to be completely impartial. And so the BBC, but both we are within the system, but we're also... Slightly out of the system because we are doing a different job. You know, we want people to watch and consume what we do, but we're not trying to sell anything. So that does give us a, a, a different kind of a, a freedom in a way. And our rules are really simple. You report impartially on the same in the same way on everyone. You have the same basic journalistic tests of the kind of who, why, what, where, how, tests of efficacy. How is somebody doing? What's people's opinions on them? All that kind of stuff. We basically you apply the same test. Now, of course, you apply the same test to people in extremely different contexts. So the tests for different politicians at different stages are very different. So, for example, right now we could say, well in the you could say for Theresa May is a very important test for her in terms of carrying parliament over Brexit right now for Jeremy Corbyn there's a different test in terms of can he does he want to and can he sort of get into that debate or you know when somebody's just been elected it was maybe a good a test for them of what kind of team can they pull together if somebody or on the other hand has been prime minister for if you think of David Cameron if he'd been prime minister for five years he'd set himself his own test in terms of successful EU renegotiation, but my—I suppose—my point is the absolute driver of impartiality is the same for everybody. But of course, when they're operating in different contexts, they will be kind of measured in different ways. I suppose is the way. So, I mean, True, I, sure, I think. I'm, no, no, I agree with <laughs> that.
1: No, not looking confused. <laughs> I'm just—I'm <laughs> looking—I'm looking
3: pensive. That's per- a okay.
1: permanent kind of. You know, My podcast looks...
2: i got a good face for a podcast. <laughs> Do you know what? I haven't um, done a
3: podcast before. This is very exciting. Right? Yeah, I'm it? sure you've got better microphones than me. Not
2: you. at all. Actually, it's difficult to be impartial on some issues, isn't it? I mean, recently, for example, the United States a lot of the press are finding it very difficult when they hear something from the president which is generally viewed not to be true how do you report impartially on something which isn't true true? in a campaign I mean Mm -hmm. without picking any particular examples in a a campaign where the scrutiny is much more on you to be impartial presumably than in normal times what happens when a particular campaign says something that isn't true do you have to say these people think this but the opposition think it's not true so what is it to be impartial when there are claims of fact knocking around well
3: there, there are three things that all kind of mash up here because there's impartiality there's balance and then there's actually what what is either absolutely true or absolutely not true or actually sometimes more more often in politics has a grain of truth in it but is being used by one side or another to suit their own purposes first of all, the most important thing is what is actually true and what is not true. And if something is not true, then we will say this is not true. And you basically call it out. And that's part of our job. So for example, uh, last week's budget, Philip Hammond, the national insurance rise, the Tories have sort of tried to wriggle out of this being a broken manifesto promise by coming up with this technicality. We have said on air repeatedly, this is a broken manifesto promise, right? No, but you know, we made that call, it is, and we, we, we've we said it. So they're... Even they're, though
1: technically they could argue and did argue that...
3: And you report that they have a technical... I use a phrase, something like they've tried to wriggle out of it on a technicality. That's their right to do so. We report that they say it's not, but we also have robustly in our reporting that the government has, you know, the Tories have broken a manifesto promise to do this. They say that, but we have reported, you know, that's fine. Or for example, I mean, there's some hilarious examples actually that have been this week, which strays a bit into sort of the whole debate around fake news, which is slightly different about bias, but I think it's worth raising. In the last couple of days over this week, there were two very striking examples of politicians being called out or trying to change something that they said when they absolutely (laughs) said it. Mm. So Liam Fox on Sunday sat in front of a giant big screen (laughs) of a tweet that he had you said about the about the Commonwealth and Britain's role in the world and all of the rest, while saying to Sophie Ridge from Sky, excellent lobby colleague, I didn't say it. Well, <laughs>
2: <laughs> And the, and the okay. tweet sat there on and screen for there. a minute. Yeah. So
3: anybody watching that, anybody yeah. then seeing the coverage of the pictures in the next day would know that he was trying to get out of something that he'd said previously. So I think a, a huge part of our job is when politicians say something then they pretend they didn't say it, is just to call that out. Right. And be honest about that. So yeah. that's about being true. What's, what's true. What do people actually say? And what they, what didn't they say? Then you get on to how they use facts, yep. which is a different conversation. I mean, it's the same conversation really, but it's, but, so if you talk about the 350 million, which I think is what you were alluding I don't to. I know what you're talking about, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Let's take that. Let's take that example. Let's take that. So repeatedly during the referendum campaign, we asked leavers about the 350 and said, you're not being straight with people. Uh, we asked the question time and time again. And I know that I did it myself in interviews. The BBC repeatedly did it. A lot of people who were very unhappy about the result look back and think, oh, it wasn't challenged properly. I just don't really agree with that. I know that me and colleagues did. The difficulty with the 350 there were two things. The difficulty with the 350 is that there's a grain of truth in it. Right. So, like all good political slogans, it's not if it had been totally fabricated and complete nonsense, then it would never have flown. But there was a complete grain of truth in it. You could see that figure in spreadsheets. That figure is there. Technically, that was how much that was going how much cash was allocated to be spent by the European Union. Now, yes loads of it came back. Yes, it was technically never sent to Brussels, like we don't put a cheque in an envelope and off it goes. But technically, there it was an ab- absolutely as a figure, it was there. So it was there taken out of context, but it wasn't made it wasn't made up. The problem also was then for the Remain campaign, they walked completely into the trap. They walked totally into the trap. So every time they complained about the figure, every time they bashed off a letter to the Statistics Authority or whatever, it worked for Leave because what Leave wanted was people to be talking about the fact that loads of money goes to the European Union. That's what they wanted to achieve. Yeah. They thought at the start of the campaign, oh, people don't really know how much money we spend on the EU. But is the moral of that story of... that
2: politicians should ignore lies of their opponents because otherwise they end up speaking to the thing that the liars? But, but want the to point
3: talk about. about that is, it was not a lie. That's exactly what I'm saying. Wasn't? Right. It, had it been a had it been a lie?
2: Had it been totally? Had it fictional. been a complete yeah. fiction? Mm.
3: But you could get into a debate about, there is a very difficult question about what you do if you're an opponent. Do you just let sure. something go by? And I'm not sure what the, what, what the answer to that is. But it worked for the Leave campaign. Every time somebody brought up the 350, the Out campaign were delighted.
2: Well, can I ask you a related question on behalf yeah. of politicians? And this is, yeah. I'm not trying to dig into my, sort of, the demons of, of my own political past well, no, here. No, we're not going to go back to any of the so conversations that we had in the No, 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 no none of that, not at all. <laughs> um, but <laughs> we need a longer podcast. There's a, there's a, certain, there's a certain category of stories yep. which I think a lot of politicians feel the, the premise is invented by journalists. So, for example, Corbyn under pressure too. Right what is under pressure to it means a lot of the time that journalists have decided from conversations that or maybe just between themselves that there is a question to be answered or or fox forced to to to, to deny something um so an example from my time is there was a uh, there was this idea that Ed Miliband, when he was leader of the opposition, had what was called a thirty five percent strategy, and when enough commentators and journalists had referred to it, it became sufficiently a fact for people to say to us why do you have a 35% strategy or Miliband forced to deny he has a 35%. And we never had a 35% strategy. We, we, We had strategies which some people could interpret as having percentages attached to them. But the idea we use that term is just not true. Now, that story we felt just sort of built up and was thrown at us as are you going to deny you've got one? Now, isn't there a category of story like that that, that emerges?
1: Is that, is that a kind of bias? And if so, what is it? Is it a herd bias? Because everyone else is saying that Ed Miliband has a 35% strategy. It's okay for me to report it.
2: It's a form of bias in the sense that it's, it's a story that isn't grounded in a fact. It's grounded in an opinion that gains traction. Right. And it may serve some people's agenda. It may just be interesting. But I, it's not systematically pro-right, pro-left, pro-Tory, pro-Labour, but I think it is the sort of thing that politicians in general get incredibly frustrated by, that they're forced to respond to things which aren't facts about what they're doing. Or
3: Well, there's an interesting thing at the moment where Theresa May's team have made a very different decision, is basically to respond to as little as possible. Mm. So in terms of this is a fourth number 10 team that I've covered, and their attitude to all of this is very, very different, where they basically try not to respond to anything. So, for example, the f- the speculation that built up around whether or not she was going to trigger Article 50 this week, like as soon as it had gone through Parliament, built up and built up and built up and built up and built up based on one thing, which is as soon as the bill had finished through Parliament, she could technically have done it mm. the next day. And there were kind of whispers and groans and all the rest around the place. But as far as I could see, sort of nobody senior, no senior sources in government were saying, everybody I was talking to was saying end of the month, end of the month, end of the month, wouldn't go for next week. Don't think that's what's good. But that's quite hard then to hold back. If you're, because you don't forget, journalists are human beings too. You know, there's there's also this competing pressure on everybody to get stories. But I remember that story about the 35% and I'm pretty sure also, and I would put the BBC in a different category, I'm pretty sure from memory that we didn't like do that story. And this is where we stand apart because my bosses will say well if there's something interesting in the papers that they're interested in they'll be like well can you go and find out if that stacks up but if we don't think it stacks up we don't do, we just don't do it i mean it's as simple as it's as simple as that that's that you know we get 3 billion pounds or whatever the latest thing is from the public for the purpose of being held to a different standard and broadcasters also in general are you know they're it's worth knowing there is very different sets of regulation for the print press and for broadcast media you know they're different things particularly during campaign periods but i think the kind of non-story that gets currency that does happen yeah i mean there's no there's no question that, that social happens. media
2: kind of exacerbates that, it does I but i yeah. think
3: that those story what i would say in on in defense because i'm not here to defend anybody but i think stories that sometimes gain traction even though they're not necessarily rooted in something kind of grainy mm-hmm. sometimes do so because they play to a wider yeah truth they speak to a
2: central truth about something. They speak, to a, something. Central, they speak yeah, to a central
3: that. truth. And I think that, without going go intruding too much on your no, no, own I past think that's right. private paid, I think that sure. story, the 35% story, it did kind of speak to a wider sure. truth. I understand. And okay. there was concern among lots of Labour MPs at that point that it wasn't ambitious enough and that you were only going for the base and you weren't, see- you know, so it, rela- it sort of told you something Else,
2: And you do get, I mean, to take another example, when the, yeah. the story about David Cameron walking to or cycling to work and then yeah, the, right. the picture showing the cars right. behind him, it spoke to a central totally. truth, which was about whether totally. it was about spin or substance. So it, I
1: understand exactly. these things work for both, both They ways. do, they, and they work on all sides. And just as a final area mm. to explore, before, the attacks on you that, that come from either I was from... I wondering from if we would like, get to like, that. Well, <laughs> you and, and other journalists, but from, that come directly from the leadership of a party or on social media from, from the kind of more ardent supporters of, of uh, one party, or another Um, how difficult is it for you not to let that move your baseline of what is objective because part of the reason they do it supposedly certainly the kind of political operatives is to just kind of give you a bit of a nudge in one direction right so you feel like you have to compensate to avoid that do you struggle with that or do you just, does it just go, is it water off a duck's back?
3: I think the first thing to say is really important. I don't feel that actually there have ever been any direct attacks on me from leaderships of any party. I just don't, I just don't feel that actually, yeah. despite all the noise. And let's face it, there has been a lot of noise that I actually have, as I would with any political party, work hard to have good working relationships with the leaderships of of everybody. And I, so I would completely, I think that's probably kind of out there as a bit of a myth and it's just not, the, it's just not the case. I think you just have to do your job, right? You do your job. You put your head down and you do your job and you don't look up your notifications on Twitter. Uh, I mean, that's... Don't but seriously, seriously mean, I, Well, no, I mean, Twitter's a really interesting, useful tool. It's kind of in lots of ways an exciting place to be. But, you know, it's also a megaphone for the kinds of things that people used to shout at their telly and now they send you a message. So,
2: Do you think Twitter's corrupted the ability of political journalists to do their job? Has it made it harder or has it made it more...
3: I think it's had lots of different effects. I think it's speeded up the news cycle mm. for sure. You know, a story can burn out in two hours and you know, and a few years ago it might have made its way into the papers and then taken another day. Um, I think it has, in lots of ways, given us loads of new avenues of information because politicians use it. So that's really interesting. Politicians are responding themselves and getting involved much more directly. So, you know, what might have used to take an hour to do a ring round of a 100 MPs and 20 of them might have picked up the phone to get a view of certain policies. You might now have actually 15 MPs on Twitter within half an hour or something giving their view. Now, the important thing, the most important thing in this context for our job is that you still phone the 100 MPs amongst your colleagues and you still talk to them. You don't just take the 15 who've gone yeah. on Twitter to sound off about whatever their view is because it's not everything. It's, it, it's a useful tool. It's an interesting tool. It can sometimes be ridiculous, <laughs> but it's not. The real world, right? And it's not, and it's, it's much. Not? Oh, <laughs> I know. I'm sorry for listening to so so this pod, po- podcast, mm. but you know, there, there. I, th- I think it's had lots of effects, and in lots of effects, I think are quite are quite good. Actually, I mean, for example, the what we were talking about before, the you know Liam Fox and Jeremy Corbyn both over the last couple of days saying, "Oh, I didn't say that," and then actually online within ten minutes, everyone's going, "Well, here's the evidence, you did." Right? You know, Nicholas Stur- Sturgeon calling the SNP referendum. Again, there are the clips of her saying, Once in a Generation in 2013. You know, within 10 minutes, that's, on, that's online. You know, in terms of kind of calling out, holding to account, going, hang on, here's a different way of looking at this. It's fantastically powerful. But in lots of ways, it can be quite an ugly place, right? You know, because people can have a go at you. And the most important thing, which is brilliant and one of the reasons why I love my job, but that makes it also quite kind of high, high jeopardy, is when people are into politics. They really, really believe in things and they really, really want the people on their side to do well for all the right reasons. So when it's not going well on any kind of objective scale and we report that, obviously people feel upset. Like obviously people feel distressed about that sometimes, you know, and we have these conversations with people at party conferences or sometimes people come in the street and will say the most kind of extraordinary things because people feel distraught when their political party isn't doing that well. But that doesn't mean that the person who's telling you about the hat has somehow got an agenda against you. I mean, it's the most fundamental thing. It's one of the human beings, human like shoot the messenger, right?
1: I think on that note, we're going to have to reluctantly wrap up. Laura needs to get back to the real world. Stuart and I need to get back to Twitter.
3: <laughs>
1: um, thank you very much, Laura, for joining our inaugural episode of The Deep Dive. we're now going to do a segment called rant or rave uh, in which Stuart and I take turns to choose a rant something that's really annoying us about uh, could be anything could be something in politics uh, could be something from from culture or a rave something that we absolutely love and want people to to know about this week we're going to start with Stuart who I believe has a rant about press releases is that right? I do. I thought, seeing as we've talked about media bias and the press, I'd pick something related to that. And my rant
2: is about politicians' press releases. Politicians' press releases are essentially works of fiction that add no value to the world. They're invariably quotes attributed to someone who's probably had at most a casual acquaintance with the words used in their name, shoved under their nose by a political advisor like what I used to be. They're full of clichés like, this tells you all you need to know about, and the cat is finally out of the bag. And the total value that they add to the sum of human knowledge is basically zero. At their best, they give a stock sentence or two for journalists to put on paragraph 34 of the story to achieve balance or some semblance of there being a competition about, about something. But what they do actually, more insidiously, is they use language that gives grist to the mill for people who think that politicians are essentially in some sort of business of producing stock quotes, using language that ordinary people don't use. And each individual press release doesn't hurt anyone. But this industry of chucking them out again and again and putting politicians' names to quotes that are frankly pretty anodyne, I think is something that we could well do without.
1: And do these, these press releases, are they coming from sort of leadership or from individual MP? Is there, is there a particular kind of source of press release that often uh, are sto- the most egregious? Yeah. Well, often it's just a,
2: it's story number 33 of the day. There's a sense that you have to be on the pitch, you have to say something. Mostly the press release, I'll have a quote that doesn't really have anything to do with the actual story. It's just a chance for you to say, Labour, on the other hand, believes in X, Y, Z, or Liberal Dems believe in this. Interestingly, you're starting to get press offices like the Liberal Democrats, actually, in the Lords, strange place, you might think, uh, who are putting out quite colourful and quite interesting press releases. I was going
1: to say, what's the what's the answer? What's the solution to this? Do we, we just stop issuing press releases, or is there a better way to...? Uh, wit it.
2: will be a good answer. Uh, a bit of humanity will be a good answer. Not just chucking out a paragraph with footnotes and, you know, to be quoted after 12 pm on the bottom. A little bit of imagination might be good. I mean, it might I mean, look, politicians who are more authentic and are more interesting tend to get more rewarded these days. I don't see why the machines underneath those politicians shouldn't have those qualities
1: too. Excellent rant on the scourge of press releases from, from Stuart. Um, I have a, a, a brief uh, rave, which is not about something political. Uh, at least not directly um well yeah maybe it is it's the oj simpson documentary which is very long it's like seven hours long it's in three parts it's currently on the bbc iplayer it won uh an oscar for best documentary this year and i'm just sort of halfway through it at the moment it is absolutely gripping totally absorbing an education about american recent american history about the role of race race relations in american history and also about this character O.J. Simpson, who, if you're British, you only have a very sort of partial view of of who he is, because you didn't grow up with him. You didn't see... What an amazing American football player he was. Now, I don't know anything about the NFL, but just seeing the footage of him running, I mean, he's so graceful. He's a sort of Roger Federer of the sport, and he was one of the all-time greats. He then went on to build, very consciously build, in a sort of almost David Beckham-like style, a career as a celebrity, and was very smart about the way he did it, and then came to this, this well, brought himself to this, this terrible end, because actually, it turns out, you know, he's an absolutely appalling human being underneath... The image. Just watching that story unfold is—I found it really gripping. Stuart, it, it is weirdly. I'm also halfway
2: through it. I think I know how it ends. I think he gets off, uh, but uh, and then and then goes goes to prison. Obviously at the end, but. Uh, it's got this central idea. It's it's like all great documentaries or great books, which are about factual things. it's It's a small topic that illustrates a massive topic. It's a biography of O.J., but actually it's about the relationship between black America and the American establishment over 40, 50 years, maybe even longer. And the great irony at the heart of it is, this is a man who, he talks a lot about how he never sees himself as a black American. He sees himself as raceless, as colorless. And avoids all the black power and civil rights causes of the 60s and 70s and yet ultimately is probably saved as he recognizes during the trial by the fact that he's a black man in the wake of the Rodney King riots and it is an extraordinary irony but it illustrates this huge theme about American life which which is absolutely brilliantly done. I should say it is 7 hours long. It's yeah. not, it's not it's not something you do, uh, you know, over over lunch or dinner. It's a very very long documentary, but it is totally gripping. You can't pull yourself but away from it. But think of it
1: as a season, you know, as a series that you you yeah. would watch and and it, it's absolutely worth your time. So that's it uh, for this show. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time on The Deep Dive.